This morning, uh, our nine o'clock service um, was was very emotional. We've had we've had shootings um, in this country in the past, but what happened Friday is hitting me at a much much deeper level. Um, I think a lot of that. Because I have a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old, and you know, it's a school that Parker and Sophie would have been at, and it's hitting me at a much, much, much deeper level than I had anticipated. Um, so I'm feeling really burdened this morning. I was uh, relieved because. Um, a lot of pastors this week are scrambling after Friday to preach a sermon because they were planning to talk about something else on Sunday. For me, it was actually the exact sermon that I prepared for the last six months. And so it was actually like, okay, Lord, um, thank you for that sliver of grace. Because uh, what I wanted to be able to share with you as we end our sermon series on suffering and when life hurts um, is what I felt like the Lord had placed on my heart and what might be appropriate this morning. Um, and I said this morning, that when, when stuff like this happens, um, when we have a tragedy like what happened in Connecticut, as I read uh, various comments and so on and so forth on newspapers and CNN, it's the why would God allow this or that to happen question. Anybody asking that question this morning? Why would our good, loving God allow such tragedy to happen? And, you know, normally, uh, and unfortunately, churches do this. People respond in one of two ways. There's some folks who say, well, don't question God. He's infinite. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's big. Your tiny little mind can't possibly comprehend what God is up to. So, therefore, just trust him. And you hear some versions of that. And then there are others, though, who take a really, really cynical sort of pessimistic view that says it's just the way that the world is. It's broken. It's messed up. There's evil. There's injustice. There's really nothing you can do. And if there is a God, he's out to lunch. This is the reason why I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. I'm not a person of faith. So the reasoning goes. Neither of those two are, frankly, for me, hopefully a person who's honest with myself or satisfactory. The first response of your mind is too little you can't comprehend god it's just too hard it's too hard even for a person of faith to go well yeah i understand that i'm not not god but i'm just what just supposed to just be like okay just shrug my shoulders and the second response is what i would say is too soft what do i mean as people of faith you and me just to respond by saying well well stuff happens life happens what are you going to do because the bible has a much more powerful response than just life happens the bible has a response that says you know we might not have the full answer and it's not smart or is it of integrity to feel like you could know everything a full answer the bible says there's a powerful answer a bible powerful idea that we find in scripture that's what god has to say about suffering about when life hurts let me just get one thing out of the way and then we'll move in okay because there's some people whose immediate response to this is, if you're a person of faith, just abandon God. Just say, ah, 
There's a reason why I don't, I don't even know I'm a Christian. I don't even know I'm a person of faith. I'm just going to abandon God because that will actually help me cope with this issue. I just want to, for two minutes, just speak to you. Does abandoning your faith in God in the midst of tragedy really help you cope? They're saying there's no God. There's no powerful, all-powerful, good God in the Bible. Does it really help? Let me, let me try and address it this way. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, the only way for us to know that a human law is just is to know that there's a higher divine law. The only way to know for human society to go, that law is unjust or that's unjust, is to say that there's a higher divine law that we put as an ultimate standard. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. It's just my opinion. Society and cultures go, well, I think that's unjust. Well, who says? It's just your opinion. It's your standard. Unless there's a higher divine law, Dr. King said, how do you even know that a law is unjust? Well, let's take it further. Let's say it this way. If there's no God and there's no ultimate source of truth and justice, how do you know any event is unjust? How do you know any event is unjust? Where do you get the idea oh, that what happened up front? That's unjust. That's e- says who? You? According to what? Your standard? Because if there's no God in the picture, I'm, I'm sorry if I get too philosophical, just like as it give me like a minute or two. If you don't believe in God, you're a secular humanist, you believe in natural selection, strong eating the weak. Just the way order of things, right? That's how we're here. Strong eating the weak. That's how we all got here. That's how the world works. Because in that paradigm, violence is not only justified, it's natural. But why is it that you and I sit here this morning and go, wait a minute, what I'm feeling? That's not just my feeling. That's unjust. That's evil. We need to do some. Well, take God out of the picture. All you have is what? Your standard of justice and your feelings. There are other cultures in the world that think it's perfectly okay to kill the unborn or to kill the born. See, evil and suffering is a huge issue for us Christians. It is. We struggle with it. But I propose to you this morning, it's just as much of a struggle, if not more, for those who are saying there's no God. Then why do you know what's evil? Why do you know what's unjust? On a morning like this, philosophical answers and solutions, they don't, they don't give us hope, do they? Where's hope found? How do we wrestle and deal with this? Where do we go? Where do we turn for answers in moments like this where we go, this just doesn't make any sense, God? Because it doesn't. Uh, I want to start with Jesus. And and, and I want to... Start with something that he said in John 16. The context, real quick, you guys, is that he is about to be crucified. He is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He is about to be crucified and die for the sins of the world so that he could reconcile you and me to God and so that he could reconcile and restore all of creation. And he says, I've told you, he's talking to the disciples these things, so that in me, everybody say in me, in me, you may have peace. Now, when Jesus says, you may have peace, literally, it's in Greek, it's a sense of ownership, of possession of. It's not wish for peace. It's not hope for peace. It's rock solid. You could experience, you could know, you could possess, you could encounter peace. And where is that found? It's what found? 
in me. And let me just be clear. In moments like this, times like this, and times when you're going through enormous things, Jesus is saying, it's in me. And let's be clear. In me is not you're sitting here on a Sunday morning going through church. In me is not I've got a bunch of Bibles laying around. In me is not I'm listening to radio programs. In me is not what I go through. In me is when your reality is immersed in my reality. In me is when you have an intimate, passionate relationship where you, God says, revolve around me, and I don't revolve around you. In me is when we say, God, life is not about me. It's not about my agenda, but it's about you. That is in me, Jesus says. You may have peace. Why do we need peace? He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, can I, how many of us just like, whew, sigh of relief. This is Jesus talking to his followers and saying, in this world, you will have trouble. Anybody? Because it validates your reality. Jesus is saying, in this world. And he's comparing this to the world that is to come. He's comparing this to the world that is to come. The kingdom that is to be ushered. He's comparing this to the perfect, just, loving, shalom, peace, restored. No more evil. No more suffering. No more injustice. No more senseless, violent acts. If that world, Jesus is comparing that world that is to come to this world. This world that is filled with chaos. This world that is filled with messiness. This world that is filled with violence. This world that is filled with death, disease. This world that is filled with trouble. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to people who love Jesus, follow Jesus. He's saying, you will have kind of, you, he's saying, you will have trouble. And not the kind of trouble like I lost my keys and I can't find key trouble. He's talking about the kind of trouble where it's not, well, I feel bad today, but tomorrow morning things are going to get better kind of trouble. He's not kind of talking about the kind of trouble where, you know what, I'm feeling a little confused, but you know, things will get, he's talking about, I am confused. I don't even know you exist. If you do exist, why does this happen? He's talking about, I don't know if I can take another day kind of trouble. Jesus, that's coming. It's coming. If not today, tomorrow, at some point it's coming. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Is that good news to anybody? Is that good news to anybody? See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. (laughs) Y'all need to help your pastor out this morning, okay? The way I wept and cried this morning, I honestly, I was just in the back in just total dark, just going, Lord, I, you need to give me strength to preach another sermon. You could help me out this morning by just at least nodding and acknowledging that what I'm saying is making any sense. Jesus says there are two overlapping realities. Let's do some theological work this morning real quick. He says there is the I have overcome the world reality. You know why that's important? Because the cross and the resurrection tells us that Jesus has overcome Satan's sin and death and injustice and evil. That he has begun the restoration process and there's a world of shalom, world of peace, world of love, justice coming in this world. But he says there's other reality of in this world where there's still sin, there's still evil, there's still senseless acts of violence. If you just have one over the other, life is not going to make sense. If you just have one over the other, 
Your spiritual viewpoint of the world just is not going to make any sense. In other words, if your life, spiritual viewpoint is just, I have overcome. I'm a Christian. I don't struggle. I just say no to hardship. I just say no to trouble. I just take hold of faith and everything will be okay. If that's your perspective on life, life is going to crush you. And some of us that grew up in churches where we were told, if you just have enough faith, things will go well, it crushes you. It crushes you. That's half the reality. The other half, Jesus said, is what? If your viewpoint is only life is hard, life stinks, things happen, there's nothing you can do, I'm just going to be in despair. Jesus says, overlapping realities. There is the already and the not yet. We live in this tension of Advent, waiting. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. But in this world, in me, Jesus says, I don't give up hope. I don't despair. I don't abandon God in times of difficulties because he has overcome. We live in that tension. We don't have all the answers. We don't have bumper sticker Christianity that just says no peace or no Jesus or no, you know, stupid bumpers. You know what I'm talking about. Life isn't wrapped up in a nice bow, is it? And please, Christians, followers of Jesus, please, please, whatever you do, when non-Christians ask you why this, please, no bumper sticker Christianity answers. Please, don't say stupid things like, well, you know, God is out of the schools and that. Please, please, please. The church in America needs to ask a better question that is, why is God not in churches? Before you ask, why is not God not in schools? Before you ask, why don't we pray in schools? Ask, why don't we pray in churches? Put all, hold up a mirror for crying. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about all the nonsense on Facebook and CNN. Please, Christians, hold up a mirror and go, the judgment starts with the house of God. So be merciful, be compassionate, be gracious to the unbelieving world about stuff like this. I want to take you to a passage where we're going to park in. Pastor Michael or somebody up there, do we have all the passages? Thank you, Michelle. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Um, we're going to go and park in this passage here, but we're going to venture into Daniel for a little bit, and then we'll venture into Isaiah, and then we'll venture back to First Peter, and then we'll venture back to Isaiah. I used a lot of passages this morning, and uh, we didn't have the passages up on the screen, so we're going to go ahead and uh, let's go ahead in First Peter chapter 3. By the way, in case you're going, context Peter, here's what's happening when Peter is writing. An emperor is on the throne who is putting Christians on stakes and lighting them on fire. Human torches. Peter is writing to an audience where Christians are being thrown into lion's den in a coliseum filled with people for entertainment. They can be eaten by lions. Peter is writing to Christians who are losing their homes, losing their love, and losing their lives. Peter is writing to Christians who are intimately familiar with suffering and trials. Intimately, intimately familiar. And he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in that last time. In this, oh, I love that. Underline that for me. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter is writing to an audience that is struggling, that is suffering, that is struggling. And he says, you have been born again into a living hope. Everybody say living hope. Everybody say living hope. Living hope. And he says, you can't go through life without this living hope. And living hope literally in Greek has a sense of power, this dynamism. He says, you have this power, you have this dynamism in you that can get through troubles and trials in this world. And what is a living hope? What is a living hope? The living hope, he says, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, the hope, the living hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because Peter says the resurrection, the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the first fruits or the foretaste of the final salvation that is to be revealed at the end time. What's he talking about? He's saying our hope is this. Our hope is that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that was a glimpse of the fact that the final salvation is that the new heavens and a new earth is coming down into this world to create a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more suffering, no more injustice, no more evil, no more death, no more disease, no more sin. He is saying, your living hope is Jesus who gave you a glimpse and a preview of the fact that there is a world coming where there will be no more mass shootings. There will be no more innocent children dying at the hands of people. Is that good news to anybody? If you're a Christian this morning, in light of what happened this week, Our only hope and the power and dynamism to get through anything that life throws at us is in this reality that there is a world coming when the king returns. He's going to finish the job of creating a world where there's no more evil, suffering, injustice, and death. That that world is coming. How do you know? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this morning, the reason I can get up tomorrow and live confident, a beautiful life for the kingdom is to know that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it was the assurance that there is a world coming. World that you and I, deep down inside, Christian, are not long for and saying, is that kind of a beautiful world possible? And the answer is yes. I have a brief challenge to you, though. Do you mind if I challenge you a little bit this morning? Edmund Burke said something along the lines of, evil will ultimately triumph and win if good men sit idly by and do nothing. See, the teachable moment in all of this is this, 
that when God rose from the dead, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he said, I'm about bringing a world of no evil, no injustice and death. That wasn't so that you and I could sit quietly and idly by and saying, Jesus, we wait for you to come and finish the job. It was so that you and I would realize that we have a part to play in that program of restoring this world. That we have a role to play. And our role, even though it's small and tiny might be, is that when we see evil and injustice in this world, we don't passively sit by and allow evil and injustice to prevail. We do something about it because we recognize that what you and I do every day, decisions that we make every single day of our lives, either participating in the program, that when God comes, he is going to finish the job, when we participate with God in the restoring of the world, or we passively, idly sit by and wait for God to come and do it. That our call, our mission as Christians is to do something in this world to make sure that evil and justice ultimately will not have the last word. I pray that this would not only burden you this week, but that you'd get up tomorrow morning and you would say to yourself, what can I do to create a more beautiful world that God is ultimately going to come and finish? What can we do? You know, last week, I, I talked to a young man who came up in our church. He's, if I told you who he was, you'd smile and go, of course, he would say that. For the last three years, he's been working in an organization that addresses injustices in the city of Chicago. And with a big smile on his face, he said, he said, Peter, every time you talk about the restoring of the world, every talk, time you talk about shalom, every time you talk about a day in which there will be no more evil injustice, he said, I just get so fired up. And he says, it makes me go to work the next day and work that much harder. I said to him, I said, so let me get this straight. So every time I preach on the restoration of the world, you don't yawn. He's like, how can I yawn? How can I yawn when I know that what I am doing, God is going to use to bring about shalom and beautiful world that he intended? And then I said to him, I said, so let me get this straight. So I said, do you think the degree to which we are involved every day in a small or large way of working with God to bring about his kingdom is extent to which every time we hear about the restoration, our hearts would jump and go, yes. He said, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you long for the coming king? Do you long for the return of the king? Do you long for a day when there will be no more evil, no more injustice, no more disease, no more death? I do. And if you do, you won't sit idly by. You will not be passive. Paul actually in 1 Corinthians 15 talked about this in such a powerful way. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 15, verse 5, I tell you a mystery. We will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable shall must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I tell you, I could just preach on that every week for the rest of this year. Because Paul captures for us the essence of Christianity. And what's the essence? He says what Jesus Christ did in this world is not prepared for us an ethereal spiritual world out there where at the end of this, God will just kind of come to us and go, you've suffered, you've struggled, they're there. What awaits us is not consolation. What awaits us is restoration. <laughs> what awaits us is re- what awaits us is restoration of this world. What do I mean? Some of us are more gnostic than we are believers in Christ and the Bible. When we get to heaven, it's not some spiritual existence. Heaven is earth coming down to earth and renewing, restoring this world so that the life you lost, you get that life back. The body that you lost, you get that body back. The family, the relationship you lost, you get that back. Okay. He says, death, oh death, you haven't swallowed up. He says, literally what awaits us is that death and suffering will be swallowed up in victory, in restoration. What's that mean? It's not that death and suffering will stop. Listen very carefully. Heaven is not death and suffering. Stop. Death and suffering, Paul says, will be swallowed up and churn into glory. You know, let me give you an analogy. When you and I eat and digest things, it makes us bigger. Some of us, I admit, makes me bigger. You eat, you digest, it makes you bigger. That's when you swallow, eat and digest, it makes you bigger. It contributes to... Let me put it this way. What does it mean that death has been swallowed up in victory? You ever lose something valuable? Do you remember what you felt when you found it again? This week on ABC News, I, 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 the, the thing happened again. Oh, there's a story about a family member who was kidnapped 50 years ago from her family when she was like four or five years old. And through ABC, they finally located her and they were going to be reunited. You ever see stuff like this? I don't know why I keep watching stuff like this because I weep like a little baby. So here's that scene, right? Here's that scene. Uh, the woman who was kidnapped. You know, she, she's being interviewed by the reporter and her family that she didn't see for 50 years is waiting in the back. And she's being interviewed and they're showing pictures, good Lord, pictures of when she was a child and stories. And, and I'm just a mess just watching this, right? But as the interview is going, the anticipation is what? It's building, it's building, it's building. Because you and I know what happens when the family walks out after 50 years and they, <laughs> and you just see that and you just you lose it. And it dawned on me this week. The family. The experience of having them. After going through the experience of losing them. Makes the experience of having them that much more glorious. That much more joyful. After having lost them for 50 years. To be reunited, to see them again, makes the 50 years of having lost them that much death and suffering swallowed up in glorious resurrection. Is that good news? Listen to me. How does a parent... How do you console a parent who lost a five-year-old? 
What consolation is there if you tell that parent, don't worry, they're not suffering. They're in a better place. That's not, that's not hopeful for me. What is hopeful is the truth of the Bible that says, when you see your child again, when you see that child again at the end, the experience of seeing that child because you lost him will be that much more glorious, that much more joyful. Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. I was planning to share this just to give you a different take or an angle on this of what the Bible means when it says suffering and that swallowed up in restoration. Joni Erickson Tata, some of you guys have read this. Before, when she was 17, in a diving accident, she became a quadriplegic, and and she's been in a wheelchair for like 50-some years, and she's been an unbelievable minister to people all over the world in terms of how to handle suffering and tragedy. This woman has been bound to a wheelchair for 50-plus years. Somebody once asked her, said, what is your hope, Joni? Why do you believe her answer was, I realize that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, when she sees Jesus, the first thing I will be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone whose spinal cord was injured like me? Can you imagine the hope this gives someone who has manic depression? No religion, no other philosophy other than biblical faith promises us new bodies and not just new minds and new hearts. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do people find such hope in hurting people like me. That's our hope. That's our hope. How much more courageous would you and I be? How much more bold and confident would you and I be? How much more radically sacrificial would you and I be if we truly believed that what awaits us is resurrection? We'd be free from this life. We would be free. Peter goes on, 1 Peter 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of God in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It's interesting that in this text, Peter likened suffering to a fiery furnace. Can anybody relate? Suffering and hardship to like going through fire. I mean, just the... But the interesting thing is when Peter wrote this, he wasn't just talking about that. He was actually thinking about a literal event that happened a while back. Peter is thinking back to literally a time in which a group of people were thrown into a fiery furnace. Do you remember? Do you remember that story? Story of what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The year is 600 B.C. Israelites have been exiled to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has issued an edict. He's raised up a, a golden statue. He's ordered the nation to bow down to it. If you do not bow down to it, he says, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are three young Jewish men who love God. And they say, we refuse to bow down to it. And we pick up the story. Check this out. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Verse 18, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You guys, this morning... This was hopeful, restorative, and a strength for some folks in our church. But it was challenging. Literally, these three men say, God is able, and he will, but if he does not. Question, are they people of faith? Are they people of faith? See, some of us go, no, they're not people of faith. Well, why not, Peter? Because if you're people of faith, you go, God is able, God will, period. And yet these three men go, God is able, God will, but if he will not. To which question be asked, if he is able, if he will, why even throw him if he will not? And if you're not sure that God will, why say he is able or he will? Make up your mind. You know what we learn from this passage? It is a major, major correction to a very dangerous and popular view of faith and the will of God. Listen very carefully. These three guys are absolutely sure that God will deliver them. They're absolutely sure that God is with them, that God is going to do this thing. But they're not. They are not arrogant to presume that they're reading God right. They're not arrogantly presuming that they know exactly how God ought to respond. They're not arrogantly presuming that they know God's wisdom and God's, God's knowledge. They, in their faith, are saying God is able, God will, but if he does not, their agenda is not taking preeminence over this what is preeminence is God and God himself. You know what they're saying? They're saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, we know God is able to deliver us. We, we, we know that he will be able to deliver us. But that's not the reason why we defy you. We don't defy you because we think we're going to live. We defy you because God is God. We defy you because God is God. God is able. God will. But if he 
doesn't. Their anchor and their trust is in God and God alone and not whether he comes through for them to fulfill their agenda. Do you know what the miracle of this story is? Some of us that grew up felt boards. The miracle of the story is, the miracle of the story is that they were prepared before they even went into the furnace. The miracle of the story is that they were spiritually fireproofed before they were physically fireproof. The miracle of the story is that they were prepared to handle anything in life. Is that true about you? Is that true about me? Can I just press you a little bit this morning? Some of us, our viewpoint is God is able, God will, period. You know how I know? Your prayers. God, I know you can answer this, and God, you must answer this, period. That's not faith in God. That's faith in your agenda. That's not confidence in God. That's confidence in your agenda. And that will never fireproof us spiritually for the things of life. Because you know what? If you're anchoring yourself, you think in faith, in God, and in reality, you're anchoring in that job, that relationship, that success, that money, that thing to come through, that's your anchor. When there is a furnace fire that comes in addressing that thing, you absolutely will be devastated. What's your faith? What are you anchored in? Jesus lovers, I'm talking to you. What is your faith? What are you anchored in? Where do you stand? That God come through for you? That God deliver you from that? That God give you that thing? Can you from the bottom of your heart say, God can, God will, but if he does not. The miracle is that they were saying, God will deliver us, whether from death or through death. But in the end, he's God. He's God. One of the most misunderstood passages is Hebrew eleven six. Says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Do you know what the reward is that the author of Hebrews talks about? What is a reward to those who believe and earnestly seek God? The reward is, is God himself. Is that enough for you? Let me just be straight. Some of us are really struggling today. Because honestly, our perspective is, God, I have an agenda, and I need you to come through on this agenda. And we use all kinds of spiritual language. It's your will. I'm following you. It's a good thing. But your attitude literally is, God, I'm going to take my agenda or nothing at all. So either you do this thing for me or I'm out. I've said this to you all the time. If you seek to meet God in order to get your needs met, you will neither meet him nor get your needs met. Don't become a Christian so that you can get God to get on board with your agenda. Become a Christian so that God could become your agenda. 
Let's finish this story. Daniel, you guys know how this ends, right? Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with the three guys and his attitude towards him changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hot. I mean, how hot does it have to be? Than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Verse 22, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 23, these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, wait a minute, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. But look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Who is that in the fire? Why is he in the fire with them? Why is God in the fire with them? Why is God in the fiery furnace with them? You ever ask that question? Isaiah comes along and he says, I'll tell you why. Isaiah 43, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, say it with me, I We'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Please understand, Jesus' followers. Is the promise, if you follow me, you'll never go through the fire. Is the promise, if you follow me, if you go through the fire. The promise is what? Say it with me. Promise is, when you go through the fire. When you go, it's coming. Trouble is coming. We live in a messed up, broken world being redeemed. When the fire comes, what's his promise? What's his promise? Say it with me. His promise is what? To be. And you go, that's not very encouraging. Can I just tell you? I've sat. I've sat with wives who've had miscarriages. Not just once. Not just twice. But three times. And I can tell you, in 20-some years of ministry, that not 5,000 sermons will do for that mother what another mother who's had a miscarriage, sitting with them, simply saying by their presence with them, I see you in your pain. I hear you in your pain. I am present with you in your pain. The promise of God is that when you and I go through the fire, not to rescue, not to deliver, but when we go through the fire, I will so love and so care about you. I will so cherish you. You will so sense my loving, caring presence with you that it will be as if I was walking right along next to you. That is the promise.
And do you realize that it's not until we get to the New Testament, it's not until we get to the cross, just how far God was willing to go to be with us. Do you realize that it's It's on the cross that we see just how far God is willing to go to fulfill his promise, to make good on that promise, to be with us. Because on the cross, we actually see God, the creator God, on the cross, suffering pain, suffering injustice. On the cross, we see the son of God, vulnerable, naked, experiencing everything we've gone through. How can you, a thinking person, worship a God when you live in a world filled with pain, a God that is immune to pain? But to our astonishment, to our astonishment, if you're a political prisoner going through unjust suffering, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, going through unjust suffering. To our astonishment on the cross, if you're a father who's lost a son, If you're a mother who's lost a son on the cross, to our astonishment, we see God the Father losing his son. On the cross, to our astonishment, if you are in a fiery personal furnace crying out, why God, why God? On the cross, we see the Son of God crying out, why God, why God? To be with To be with me? This insight came alive for me in a different way this week as I meditated. As I meditated on the cross, I realized, maybe for the first time, you guys realize that there are a lot of people actually who died better than Jesus. Stories like the Maccabean martyrs. Jewish nationalistic sort of rebels against the Roman Empire. Stories are told that as they're dying, as they're being fed to the lions, they smiled, heads held up high, forgiving their torturers, singing. You ever read the Gospels? Jesus is in agony. He's groaning in pain. He's saying, God, why? Take this away from me. And maybe for the first time it dawned on me that Jesus isn't just going through physical suffering and the most physical, physical suffering the earth Jesus is experiencing cosmic suffering. What do I mean? You know what hit me more than anything else this week? When you lose the love of a friend, that hurts. When you lose the love of a spouse, that's deep. The stronger the love the deeper the bond, the more devastating, the more devastating the loss. Jesus Christ has loved God the Father for all of eternity. 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 And on the cross, he is losing the love of someone he has loved for all of eternity. For who? For 
Whew. For me. And for you. That's why for three weeks I've said to you guys, the cross doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us why God allows suffering and evil to continue. But the cross absolutely does tell us what the reasons aren't. And the reason, how can you look at the cross and say, God, you don't care? How can you look at the cross and say, God, you're indifferent to my pain? How does a God love you and me so much that he does that so that he could end evil and suffering once and for all without ending us? What kind of a God does that? I finish. First Peter 1.12 It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. He's talking about the prophets when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Verse 12 is just absolutely astounding. The first service didn't get a chance for this because we have enough time. It says the angels longed, and the word long is an amazing word if you're taking notes. It's the Greek word epithumia, which means lust. You know what that's literally saying? The angels are lusting or longing passionately, obsessively looking into something. You know what they're looking into? They're looking into the gospel. They're looking into the gospel The angels who've been around forever, listen carefully, please. They're looking into the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he has done, and they're looking into it, and they're never getting tired of it. They're looking into it passionately. They're looking into it, never getting tired of it. Never. You you and I sit there and go, the gospel, you mean the thing you need to do to become a Christian? And once I become a Christian, I move on? Oh, no, 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 no. The angels who are way smarter than you and me, who've been around for a lot longer, every single day are looking into the gospel, looking into the gospel, looking into the gospel, getting something new, getting something new. The angels longing for the gospel. The only way that you and I will be able to go through living hope is by looking at the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Hebrews 12. Jesus says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus had a living hope. Do you know what the living hope was? Isaiah says this and we're done. He, that is Jesus, will see the result of the suffering of this soul and he will be satisfied. That's literally saying something will cause Jesus to look at and go, everything that I've gone through, including eternal separation from the Father, will be all worth it because of this. What is that? My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you know what Jesus' living hope was? Do you know what enabled him to be on the cross to be eternally separated from the Father and saying that's all worth it? Do you know what that was? His living hope was who? You. And me. Wrap your mind. Somebody say hallelujah. Wrap your mind. The only thing, think about this, that Jesus Christ did not have in heaven. The only thing that the Son of God did not have in heaven. He had the praise, glory of all. The only thing he did not have in heaven is you. 
and me, redeemed, restored, beautified. And Jesus says, I'm looking at that and saying, my suffering will be worth it. If that is the Jesus and the Savior and the Messiah who came, how can you possibly, going through your personal little fiery trials, ever say to God, you love me? You care about me? Friends, friends, the only way that you could anchor your hope in the living hope that is Jesus is if you know. The only way is that the only way you and I will avoid the cosmic, eternal furnace that awaited all of us as rebellious sinners is the fact that Jesus Christ went through the ultimate furnace for us. That is the only way when you go through your little fiery furnace, you'll be able to say, he loves me. He is with me. He is not going to abandon me. See, I'm like you. I, I don't want Jesus to be with me in the fiery furnace. I want him to get me the heck out. I want him to push the eject button and get me the heck out. And yet the promise of Scripture, as Jesus says, I will be with you. Here's what this means. This means as I'm speaking this morning to a couple who've been trying to have a child for years. And the wife got pregnant and she was so looking forward to having that child. And she lost that child through miscarriage. And the Bible says, in that, God was, say with me, with. You're sitting in this morning and saying, Peter, the job that I've looked for, the job that I long for all of these years was right there. I thought I had it gone. I'm completely in despair about to fall apart. Where is God? And the Bible says, and God was, say with me, with you. Sitting in this morning. For the last eight months, right here in that seat every week, is John Mahoney, who has a brain tumor, a freaking brain tumor, and he's here just about every Sunday. I dreaded preaching this sermon series. John is going through chemo and radiation. He doesn't know if he's going to live. John sat there every Sunday throughout the sermon series. Last Sunday, he comes up to me with tears in his eyes, and he says, that's the first Sunday, Peter, I cried, and I cried, and I cried. Because even in the midst of this, these are his words. I know that God is. Say it with me. With me. And the amazing thing is, when Jesus decides to come to this earth, of all the names that God could have chosen for his son, he chose the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Will you join me as I conclude and pray for the family and the town and the community of Newtown? Father, we lift up all those families that have lost a loved one. We pray that in this very difficult season that they would experience 
come to know Emmanuel, God with us. Pray for the churches in that community that they would indeed be the light in the darkness. Pray, God, particularly that in this very difficult emotional season, rather than falling for pat answers, that we would be willing to maintain and live in the tension of God who is able, who will. But if he doesn't, give us boldness and courage to live beautiful, confident lives, to honor the memories of those who have passed. For this church family, God, that is a leave this place and live this week anchored in the living hope that is Christ Jesus. May you give them strength, peace, joy that could only be found in you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.